just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section in Second Peter in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there are false prophets, as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And though, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if the Lord spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an, with an overthrow, making them as an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of the uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> There's a lot in this section that Peter is talking about. He starts out in, in verse 1, but there, but there were false prophets among the people. Here he's kind of looking back into the history of the Jews, you know, talking about all the different times that they've had false prophets. But not only that, he also is looking at Christian churches. There are a lot of people who are prophets, pastors, teachers, even evangelists that are false. They don't believe the word of God. It was bad even in the first century. It is even worse in our day. We have many churches that name the name of Christ that are filled with false, false prophets. They deny the word of God. They deny Jesus. I don't know why they put the name Christian on their church if they're denying the Bible and they're denying Jesus because if you're going to call yourself a Christian, by definition, that is a follower of Christ. Okay? The Jews, the Christians in the early church took the name Christians, and it was in Antioch, it was an accusation. You're nothing but a bunch of Christ followers. You're, you're nothing but those Christians. You're following Christ. And the Christians said, we like that. Yeah, we like that. We're going to take that as our title. So what started out as an accusation became their name. And nowadays, we have churches that are claiming to be Christians that aren't following God, aren't following Christ, don't even believe the word of God, don't believe in Christ, and I don't know why they're calling themselves Christians, other than it draws a bunch of other people in that don't have any discernment. And here Peter's saying, there's been false prophets, and it's kind of a warning that there always will be false prophets. And this is why sometimes when somebody becomes a new Christian, I'm kind of afraid to just let them go find their own church on their own. Because there are so many bad churches that sound good, you know, it's an amazing fact that some people can lie in such a way that it sounds like it's really good, it sounds truthful, that's how they get to be, run their cons, 
if they sound truthful, it sounds good. It sounds like you're really giving me good information. And then people get taken in by that con. And there are so many churches out there that they might even read a Bible verse to start, and that's the only time they quote the Bible verse or anything to do with the Bible. You know, okay, we read, we read our obligatory one verse out of the Bible, and here's what I'm going to tell you. And we have a few televangelists that do the same thing. They read one verse and then give you a whole bunch of feel-good stuff. Well, the Bible isn't full of feel-good stuff. The Bible tells us that we're going to suffer. It tells us that bad things are going to happen to us. I hate the people that go, well, just become a Christian and all, all your life is going to get good. Well, uh, in one sense, there's a truth to that. I have a piece that passes understanding. I know that God is in control. So yes, on one side of that coin, I do well and, I, and I'm doing good. But all that is is because I have something to hold on to while all the bad stuff's coming my way. And that comes my way and I'm going, all right, God, uh, your promises that all things work together for good, your promises that, you're, that I'm dwelled in you and that, and that I'm in you and that I'm your child and you're going to protect me. But God, you sure let a lot of bad stuff happen. <laughs> and, all those, and as we've said over and over, all that bad stuff is to teach us, to prepare us, to test us. Do you really believe what God says is true? And so when we go through the bad stuff, he's saying, do you believe? Do you believe all things work together for good when your whole world is falling apart and everything's being taken away from you? Do you still believe that it's all going to work for good? Do you still believe that I'm good? You know, do you believe when, when you're being persecuted that God is in control? And hopefully, more often than not, we say yes, but I know for a fact that it's usually the other way around. We get into that trial, okay, God, I don't understand any of this, you know, and sometimes it draws people away. It pushes people away. Now, do they know God in the first place? I'm not their judge. That's between them and God. Are they just letting themselves be driven away and they're under conviction and eventually will come back? I don't know. I'm not the judge of anybody who falls. falls. I'm there just to minister to them. If I see them fallen, I'm going to treat them like an unsaved person and try to bring them back to Christ. But if I know them really well and I go, okay, God, this person I know seems to have had a walk with you, you know, get back in their heart, grab hold of their heart and bring, bring them back. And I have seen that happen over time. Somebody's a Christian and growing up, they get turned away through work or bad friends and then eventually realize how dumb their decision to walk away from God was and come back to him. And that's, that's quite possible. And as has been said, if somebody seems to be a Christian and totally walks away from God, it's just a sign that they probably weren't his to begin with. They were just work, doing good works, you know, trying to, live the, trying to live the Christian life. And some people do it very successfully. Some people are well-disciplined. And they can live a, live a Christian life pretty, pretty well on the outward. But on the inward, they know that they're not. They know that every time they hear that message, they're convicted that they need to come to Christ and refuse to because the sad thing about those that lifestyle is everybody thinks you're a Christian. What are they going to think about you if you go forward now? You know, you know you're not a Christian, but, but they don't. They think you're a Christian. What, what are they going to think if you go forward and you pray and you, and you announce that you're now a Christian? Satan is so good at manipulating us into what, what others think. Well, the biggest thing we need to consider is there's only one person we should care what, of what they think, and that's God. Everybody else's thoughts doesn't matter, and it really doesn't. 
you know, I deal with that even in the workplaces. It's amazing to me how many people look at somebody with a long title or a high title and even if they make bad decisions and dumb decisions, won't challenge them and tell them, you know, what you're doing is wrong. Because they don't want to offend that person who might be the one that makes the decision on whether they get promoted or, or take a job, you know. So we'll just let, the, we'll just let the, them run, it, run the business into the ground and we won't say, we won't say anything because we just want to be yes men. No, we can't afford that. Now that doesn't mean be disrespectful of them or, you know, argument, but pointing out their inaccuracies is one thing. You know, hey, you know, this, this, that, and the other thing is not a good decision. If they don't like that kind of thing, then I don't want to be part of that company anyway. But you know, we answer to God. And God is never going to be wrong. He may appear to be wrong by our standards, but I will give him the credit that he knows just a little bit more about things than I do. You know, uh, and I think that's very important for us always to understand. Even when we think God is doing something bad for us, our very first thing to always remember is God is good. Always. He's always good. He always has good plans for us. Even when I look at what he's doing and what he's allowing and what's going on in my life, and I'm going, God, how can this be good? You know, we need to be able to give God the credit that he knows just a little bit more about things than we do. Just a little bit. Uh, you know, probably a lot more. <laughs> you know, no matter how much we think we know, his understanding is so infinitely more than what we know, you know that we just need to go, God, I don't understand it, but I don't need to know it. And God has never promised us that he would explain everything he's doing to us. Now, when we get to heaven and we get to see what he has done, we'll understand a lot more about it and maybe understand most of what he allowed to come into our life. I don't even know for sure what he'll tell us all at that time because he's still God and he doesn't have to answer to us. <laughs> we couldn't handle it anyway, you're right. But it's kind of like you know, when you have a little child asking why they can't uh, go play in the road. Well, I know you don't understand it, but no, you can't go play in the road. It's dangerous. Well, I don't know. We, we do it all the time. You know, but, you know, we've got to be able to understand God knows just a little bit more than we know about our situations, and he knows what he's got in store for us. And he knows what's going to happen 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the road with us. So he is looking long term. And sometimes people don't like it when we have to make decisions in the short term that help in the long term. And God is saying, I want to help you. You may not understand how it helps you tomorrow because it doesn't help you tomorrow. It doesn't help you next year. It doesn't help you 10 years from now, but 20 years from now, you'll understand why this was important. And this is why it's important that he says, there's false prophets among you, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring damnation, damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring to themselves swift destruction. There are so many places in this day and age where they deny that Jesus even is Jesus. They deny the validity of the word of God. It is an amazing thing to me when people that are Christians do this. Now, we, we see it frequently. You hear it frequently. You know, they'll, you know, on the news and stuff even, they'll bring out this, this pastor of some strange church that will tell you that Jesus never, was, never claimed to be the Son of God, never died on the cross, and if he did, he didn't resurrect, and by the way, the Bible's not accurate anyway. 
And you're going, where did you find this guy and what church does he belong to? But you know, the sad thing is there's lots of those out there. I meet them so often. You start talking to them about, you know, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, what does that mean? Well, you know, I go to church. Okay. What about going to church makes you a Christian? Well, it's a Christian church. Well, what about going to a Christian church makes you a Christian? Well, you know, they all, we're all Christians there. All right, we're getting closer. What is a Christian? Well, we're all people that go to the Christian church. Okay, I don't think you're a Christian. By definition, a Christian is one who has Jesus Christ as their Lord and, and master of their life. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, no, 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 you know, we don't believe in this Jesus guy. Okay, you know, it is all these heresies that are being brought into the church, these ideas of false teachings. And, you know, some of them come from a long ways back. There, there are false teachings in virtually every denomination even where they have twisted scripture to match up. This is why I challenge us all the time. Go back to the scripture. Even if I say it, go back to the scriptures. Make sure that you agree that what I'm teaching is from the Bible because I could get off as easy as anybody else. I've studied a long time and I know what I believe and I know why I believe it, but I could be wrong. I could possibly be wrong. There's a small, minute chance of it, you know, you know. But no, I understand. There's a good chance that I could be wrong. And I know that there's things I've changed over the years of study and where I used to believe something and I get into the Bible a little deeper and going, oh, you know what? I don't think I, I, don't think I was right 20 years ago. Look what these verses all say. But it's important for us to understand what is it that we believe. Because there's plenty of opportunity to listen. Just because somebody has a degree and has been teaching for 20, 30, 40 years and, and all these other things doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. Now, if they went to a good school and they've been teaching straight from the Bible, they probably stand a better chance of being right than wrong. But it's a very dangerous thing. Each denomination that is out there that is now very liberal and, and not following Jesus, and there are a lot of denominations that are doing that, they all started out very strong with good biblical leaders that started out with good, strong foundations and have drifted over the years. And this is true some, even of some Baptist denominations out there. And it's my concern even in the Southern Baptist to a degree. In the 70s, we almost lost our, lost our seminaries for about a decade to very liberal thought processes. Well, 70s and 80s, all of those guys are now in the senior ranks. If they're still around and they'd been trained in the five, four out of the five liberal seminaries, and if they're still in the ministry, they're the ones coming into senior positions of power. We need to be praying for even the Southern Baptist because we're, and we're already seeing it. There are certain people in certain positions that are very liberal in their beliefs. I'm not saying non-God, non, but they are drifting further and further to things that I don't agree with. So I'm watching them carefully. Say, okay, God, where is this, this denomination going? Now, I don't consider myself a Southern Baptist pastor. Even though this is a Southern Baptist church, I consider myself a Christian, Bible-believing pastor. And we will always be that. As long as I'm here, that's what we're going to preach and teach. But, you know, I'm watching the denomination as a whole to see where it goes. And this is what's coming in. They come in. They come in quietly. They come in with a lot of stealth. This is how Satan works. 
Satan's lies were never, when he talked to Eve, it wasn't, well, well, you know, you can eat anything you want. God, God's just an outright liar. You know, he was very subtle with it, leading her down a path and then saying, well, you know, he didn't even then directly call God a liar. He just says, well, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. Now, we know looking back with our sin nature and everything, we know that he was a straight out lie. But she had known only innocence. And now she's being told, well, he's trying to keep something away from you. How many of us have fallen for that kind of a lie in our lifetime? This person just doesn't want you to have what they have. Oh, the idea of covetousness. <laughs> you know, if you just had whatever it is, you'd be happy. That's what all of our commercials are based on. If you just had this special product, you'll be happy in your life. That is the way that these false teachers come in. These false teachers don't come in and just totally say the Bible's wrong and God's wrong and they lead you down. They, they will pull scriptures out of context. They will pull things out and slowly start working you down a path. And the next thing you know, you're like, how did I end up at this place? I no longer believe this. I no longer know what to believe. You know, when we get lost, do we usually go out and say, I'm going to go get lost? <laughs> no, we, we think we know where we're going. We take a few turns and we end up not knowing where we're at. Now, my, my kids one time asked me, are we lost? I go, no, I don't know where I'm at at the moment, but I do know how to get back to where I came from. <laughs> All right, because I, I, especially when I go places I don't know, I make sure I keep track of the turns that I make. Uh, but that's how we end up lost in the, in, in the spiritual world sometimes as a Christian. And I don't mean lost, lost, but just losing our bearings. We start following somebody who's taken us down the wrong path. And again, how do we get back? We confess to God and we admit to God and ask him to put a good teacher back in our life. So it's easy to get back on track, but it, it's really easy to fall the wrong direction and drift off, gain, gaining the wrong direction. And verse 2 says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Pernicious, evil. Not just evil, but strongly evil. You know, we people will follow these false teachers. Yeah. And some of these false teachers may sound really good. You know, they'll, uh, for a long time, people in America, you know, talked about all these racial differences. And, you know, for a long time, it was considered that the blacks were being punished by God and that they were lesser people and all these things. I don't know where they came from, and it definitely didn't come from Scripture. It made no sense, and yet people believed it. And they took a couple verses out of context and lifted them up and said, see, here, here, here's our proof verses. We need to be careful. And this is why, you know, you all know when I get a Bible question, the first thing I do, you know, when you ask me a question is, I want to know what does it say in context? What does this verse say in context? Because that'll help usually when you read it in context and answers what the verse is talking about. I read 10, 20, 30 verses either side of it, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, yeah, here's what he's saying. Because oftentimes, and I think about this, you know, sometimes there's things I've said on, in our, my messages that if you were to take the message and clip out just that one point, you'd have me saying some really crazy, damnable, doctrinal things because I, I will say, some people teach this. Well, if you cut that part out, 
and just take what, what I said about what they teach, you're going to see, well, Pastor Ralph, you know, Pastor Ralph's been teaching this stuff. And this is the problem with taking clips out of videos, taking things out of context. You can make somebody say just about anything you want them to say if you clip out certain pieces or you take just certain parts of it. You know, I commented to somebody the other day on the, you know, I don't like listening to the news when they run these little 30-second clips of somebody. You know, so-and-so said this, and you listen to them, it's their voice, they said it. And you go back to listen to the whole speech, and it's like, uh, okay, they were commenting on something somebody else said, and they clipped it at just the right time to make them say something totally stupid. This is why we need to be careful. We could be led astray easily, easily and walked away. And then it says, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. What is happening in today's world when we speak truth? People attack the truth. What is one of the biggest things that happened is the idea that started in the 60s that truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. And I love dealing with that when I was in school. You know, people will go, you know, there's no, there's no absolute truth. And I go, is that absolutely true? And they'll look at me like, what? I go, you just made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. That is contrary. You cannot have your statement be true. Your own statement is false. You made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. And yet people don't understand what they've said. They just believe there's absolutely no absolute truth and will go on living a lie. How easy is it for us to fall for that? You know, and there's so many, so many things are built on lies and people will go, well, that's what I believe. Well, that's fine. I could, I could believe the sun is black, but that doesn't change the color of the sun. I could believe the blue, grass is blue, but that doesn't change the color of the blue grass. I could believe that there's no gravity and walk off the cliff and I'm still gonna fall. All right, I can believe that I can breathe underwater without a, without a scuba tank and I'm still going to drown. You know, it doesn't matter what we believe. If something is true, it is true. And I've told people that. I go, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. There is a day that you're going to stand before God and the, at the white throne judgment and have to answer for, your, for this life. Well, I don't believe that. I go, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's true. And that's when you'll get, well, that's, that's, not, that's your truth, not my truth. I go, truth is truth. If you want to defend yourself, prove that I'm wrong. Prove that it's not, that there is no God to follow. And, you know, it gets into some very interesting discussions at times. Because truth is truth. I am banking everything that I have in my entire existence that God is true. And he's been true for me for 48 years, and I don't think he's going to change. He hasn't changed yet hasn't changed in the 4,000 years that the Bible has been in existence, hasn't been false in any of my life, hasn't been false in any of the biographies that I read in their lives, I don't think he's going to change. I can count on his truth. I can build my life on his word. And even if I don't, I've had a wonderful life. Even if somehow his word is not true, he's given me a wonderful life. And because he's given me a wonderful life, I know that the eternity is true because of what he's done in this life. Without him, what do you stand on? Shifting sands? Whatever, whatever I believe is true, or whatever you, whatever you can convince me is true is true. I can't imagine living that way.
I love it when people say, you know, you know, talk about this one building in this college that has things built all over it that have no sense, stairways that go nowhere and, and walls that go nowhere. And I love Ravi Zachariah's question to the person who was showing off this room, this building. He goes, I have one question for you. He goes, did they take that same approach into the, in, the, in the foundation and the support walls? Obviously, they didn't. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a building. Okay? There had to be a firm foundation for the building to be built on, and the support walls have to be there. You can do whatever you wanted with it, but this truth was still there. You had to have their support. People are trying to live their lives without the truth of God. And when we try to live our life without the truth of God, it is empty. It is vain, as, as Solomon tells us in Exodus. Uh, in Exodus. Ecclesiastes. <laughs> you know, without God, everything is vain. Everything is empty. With God... There's fulfillment, there's joy, there's peace. Doesn't mean we have a perfect life. Doesn't mean that there's no pain, no trials. It just means that God is overarching it for us. And we go, God, thank you. I love being able to trust God. God, I don't understand this, but I don't have to. You're in control. Just like a kid. You know, our young kids think we are, we're perfect when, you know, when they're little, little. Little, little, we're perfect. We're, you know, mom or dad can save the day. Mom and dad can get over get anything. They, they start losing their, their trust in us as, we, as they find out that we're not perfect and that we can't solve everything. And especially if we're not following God and we really do a bad job at it. But you know, God is not like that. He is always going to be there. Always going to be victorious and always has a plan. I love that we can trust him. I love being able to just trust God and go, you know, and as I've said many times, I really, truly, 100% believe Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. And even when I don't understand how it can be, I just go, God, I don't understand it, but you've said it, I'm going to believe it. And there's plenty of times I've said that prayer to him. God, don't understand how this could be good. For anybody, much less, you know, <laughs> but you've said that it is for good, and you are a good God, and I'm going to trust you. That gets you into so much peace. God, my whole life has fallen apart. Everything's falling apart around me, it seems, but you are good, and you're going to use it for good. Sometimes it's because I deserve it. Sometimes it's because I've been stubborn, and God's trying to beat me over the head with a two-by-four to get my attention. Other times it's just the trial. Job was in a trial that he did not deserve, according to God's testimony, but God also was trying to change his theology. God oftentimes will take and say, this is what you believe, let's, say, let's see if it holds up under pressure. One of the things if you're in manufacturing that you do is you take your product and you try to abuse it to see how long it'll last even under abusive conditions. It's one thing to say, well, this works in a perfect environment. My fan will work as long as you keep the temperature at 70 or below and never run it, it will work all, all, whenever you turn it on. All right, let's say I'm at 110, 120 all the time, and it's running day and night. How long does that fan work? And that's how they would test that fan. I don't know why I picked a fan, but, you know, probably because it's so hot around here, we need fans. But you understand the difference. You know, if I'm barely running my fan because it's never over 70 degrees, that, that fan's probably going to last forever. If it's 120 outside and my fan's running 24-7, seven days a week, it's going to burn out. The question is, how long will it burn out? How long will it be till it burns out? We need to know, can we trust God? 
with this idea of the truth being spoken evil against. Part of this is it's automatic. Satan is going to speak against the truth. He did it with Adam and Eve. He's done it with everybody since that time. You know, is God really telling you the truth? Is it really true? But the other more sad thing is us as Christians can really hurt the truth with our lifestyle. We tell everybody how God is good and how, we, how you need to trust him and how you, how you need to be, and then we mess up. And I'm not just meaning something minor. You know, I'm a Christian, look at me, and the next thing I know, you're on skid row because you got wrapped up in alcohol. And people are looking, is that what God does? <laughs> they, your God was, I thought, you, I thought you believed in God. I thought he was good. What are you doing here? Or we get some of these televangelists that have committed adultery, putting a black eye on the testimony of the truth. You know, and I know, I've witnessed to so many people that said, well, if you only knew my situation, my wife did such and such, and she was supposed to be a Christian, or my friend did such and such, and they were supposed to be a Christian. You know, I don't know that I can trust Christians after all this. And all you can tell them, you can't let the bad apples ruin, ruin a relationship with God. But it does make things very difficult to witness to those people. Because they'll go, well, you know, I've, I've met Christians. I know Christians. You know, they're, they're, they're no better than anybody else. You know, it gives you an opportunity. You're right, absolutely. We're no better than the other. But God has come into our life and, and saved us. And I know they should have lived a better life. And they should have been a better example. But they're not perfect. Only God is perfect. And making the truth be spoken evil of. And there's going to be some consequences for us. When we stand before Jesus at the Bema Seat, he's going to say, look at the damage that some of your sin, some of your bad actions did. We're going to be forgiven. We're going to be covered. But, you know, there are possibilities that sometimes when we've been so incorrect in our living that we may turn somebody away from God, and it'll be a hard... It's not giving them an excuse. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to be an excuse before God. Well, well you know, God, if it wasn't for Christian... You know, one and three and four that I met, I, I'd be in heaven. I would have accepted you except for those. God's not going to let that be their excuse. Because he's going to point out, well, Christian 2, 7, and 8 told you the gospel message and, and was a good example to you. He's not going to let that be an excuse, but it does make life more difficult for that person who looks at you and says, you're a terrible Christian. I don't want to be anything like that. And I've met kids who've grown up in quote-unquote Christian homes that have had terrible parents they want nothing to do with Christianity because they saw a Christianity where their, their family went to church on Sunday and called themselves Christians. And then dad, as a salesman, lied to his customers all the time and mom beat them and didn't care for them. You know, they were, and both their parents were alcoholics, you know, except on Sunday morning, or drug users, except on Sunday morning. And, you know, and their kids grew up saying, well, I don't want anything about Christianity because that Sunday morning stuff with no power is not what I want. And I've met so many Christians, so many kids in the Christian schools and Christian Sunday schools that had parents like that, and I have to stop them. I'm going, you can't, you can't blame your parents. I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen to that. You need to make your decision before God, though, to be a follower of his. And it is amazing. When we live Christ in front of people, it can make an impact. And usually those are the impacts that people don't, that we don't even know we've, that we've made. And I love hearing the testimonies of, I watched so-and-so, they lived Christ. They didn't react the way I would have thought somebody reacted. They, they walked with God. 
They walked with God. God was real to them. They may never even talk to you about God. They just know that you're a Christian. And I'm going, yeah, that's, that person impresses me. They show love when people are being nasty to them. They're kind to them. They're not talking about them behind their backs. They're not trying to get revenge. They're lifting God up. And it's an amazing thing when we just lift God up and people see it. Most of us can know somebody in our life that we know they're a Christian. Maybe they've never even talked to us. But we just are sure they're a Christian because of the way they live. Because it's different. Christian, walking a Christian life is different. When God lives in us and he's coming out of us, it's going to show. I know sometimes that somebody's a Christian, even before I talk to them, just by watching the way they react to cer certain situations, the things they say, the things they do. And then you get to talk to them and you find out, yep, they're a Christian. It, they admit that they're a Christian. They know Jesus Christ. And I love as, as I'm watching our church grow and you saying, there's certain people in this church I know darn well that they're a Christian. It doesn't matter what they say or don't say. And there's certain men going, okay, maybe, maybe not. That's between them and God. But there are certain people in this church I'm going, yep, this person talks the right terms. They say the right things. They act the right way consistently. You know, when I, when I see them around town, they act this way. When I see them, when I see them down, in, down in Kingman, you know, they act this way. Yes. You know, when I've seen them under pressure, yes, they're acting that way. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? Nope. <laughs> but we also understand that there's a way to live. Verse 3 says, Even through covetousness, they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. Through covetousness, they shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. There are so many, especially I think of the televangelists. You know, they have this idea that they want to make a lot of money. You know, it's kind of amazing. I get, a lot, I get contacts, phone calls, letters from all these different groups that are saying, we want to come to your church to, to minister. Well, when I, when I respond to these guys, if I respond to them, I will go, first off, the first thing I want you to know is that our church only has about 25 people. Are you still, and we are in the middle of nowhere. Are you still willing to come out? Probably 75 to 90% of them say no. They're not willing to come to a small, small church in the middle of nowhere. And I'm going, okay. That's, I mean, I understand. I do understand on one side. It costs money to get here. But don't tell me how much you're ministering if the small church is too small, to, too small for you to think about. And believe me, I understand on one side, it's a financial, especially if it's a big group, there's no way we're going to get a big group in here. You know, you bring, you know, a group of six, seven, eight people in it and all the all this equipment that they need, they're not coming here for 25 people. And I understand that. That's a financial decision. But don't be calling small churches. Don't be saying, we'll go anywhere if you're not going to go every, anywhere. Uh, and some of the big groups, I won't even bother calling them back because I know they're not coming here. It's not, not going to happen. But it does amaze me when certain people don't want to have anything to do with small churches. And because I grew up in an age where that's all you did. You went from town to town, church to church. There weren't any great big concert halls. You know, you, when, when I was growing up, the Gaither, Bill and Gloria Gaither, were very famous in the world, but they still went to every little church and wandered around because outside of the Christian music, uh, stations, you didn't have a lot of great big auditoriums that were filled with Christian singers. You know, you might get a big church once in a while. <laughs> but 
you know, what is our purpose? When we're out there serving God, what are we looking to serve? You know, I pray, praise God. I'm here in a small church. If God makes it a big church, great. If he doesn't, great. But, you know, small churches, small groups of people need ministered to just as much as these big monster mega churches. And you probably get more blessing from the small church because most of them are probably, more of them are probably Christian than the, a lot of the mega churches. Because the mega churches usually have a watered down message. Not always. There are some good ones out there, but a lot of them have a very watered down message because those pastors are afraid of offending somebody and losing their, losing their congregation. Small churches just usually a lot more often will tell it as it is. This is what God says. Okay, God, I lost half my church. I only had 30 in the beginning. Now I've got 15. There are good 15. <laughs> but yeah, there are good 15. They believe your word. You know, uh, if you have a 10,000-person church and you lose 5,000 people, you'd be hurting. Your budget would be destroyed. And, you know, but the same logic is true, though. Okay, God, I have 5,000 less people, but these ones who believe you. I would appreciate it. But the people sitting on all the financial committees wouldn't be appreciating it. But, you know, we need to speak the truth. Covetousness. I do know that there are pastors out there that are very covetous. They want the pay that they're getting, and they're all about the pay. They're all about the, the perks of being a pastor. And I think there's great perks. I get to teach people. That's my perk. <laughs> I get to teach people, but I'm gonna, I was going to do that anyway. I spent my entire life doing home Bible studies and Sunday school classes. I've always been a teacher. And I just say it's nice as a pastor. I get a little bit of pay for doing so. Not a great bunch of pay, but I get a little bit of pay for doing what I love to do and would do anyway. And if the pay got cut, I'd have to say, okay, we're going to still do this. Until God tells me to leave, we're gonna, I'm going to do this because I work for him. And the one thing I know is God has never let me down, ever. And I've made my plans to be with him, to do what he wants, to serve him. And I've said this so many times, you know, it's amazing to me how every age group has a reason not to serve God. You know, and, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager, you're busy in school, you're busy in sports, you're busy trying to learn who you are. You get to college, you're really trying to learn who you are, and you've got a busy life with all your friends. You start work, you're, you know, well, I can't, I can't serve you now, God. I, I've got to put time in at work because if I don't show that I'm, you know, in, uh, invaluable to them, I can't, get, I can't move up. Then you get up into the middle management. Oh, well, God, I can't serve you now because I'm so busy trying to keep this company afloat. And, and by the way, God, my kids are now teenagers. I've got to go to their games and their concerts and their, and their plays. Uh, you know, and then we get older, and it's like, okay, God, you know, well, I'm, this is my business now. I've got to keep it running. And, and then we get to be a senior retired person. I go, God, I'm just so tired. I can't serve you anymore. And it's like every age has this excuse not to serve God. How do we serve God? We choose to. We choose to give him time. We choose to carve out time for who's supposed to be number one in our life. And it's, the example is, you know, these same people have an ex, who have the excuses not to come to church, not to serve God. If you gave them tickets to their favorite singing group or their fa you know, opera or favorite sports team, I think they would find time to go take care of it. You know, if they're a football fan, hey, I've got tickets for the Super Bowl, and I'm going to give you the airfare out there to it in the hotel here. That person who has no time for God would find time to go watch the Super Bowl or the World Series or the, whatever the basketball's 
you know, game, championship game or hockey. Oh, your, your favorite group is what? Oh, you know, they're going to be in town, you know, just town over. We'll give you a hotel stay and the, and the tickets here. They'd find time for them. But, you know, God, who's supposed to be God, who's no other gods before us, we can't find time for him in many cases. No, no I'm speaking to the choir here because everybody in this room finds time for God all the time. But you understand what I'm saying. There are a lot of people who just can't find time for God. And he's supposed to be number one. He's supposed to be God. And they can't find time to serve, to serve him. And it's more than just coming to church. Coming to church is a good start. But to truly serve him. How much of our time each week do we really give to God? You know, and, I, and I teach, you know, I believe God wants at least a tithe of our time. All right, 16.8 hours a week at least. That would be the minimum. I think he wants more than that. <laughs> that's not just coming to church services. Even, even, in a, even in a place as busy as we are, that's more than just coming to church uh, for the studies. That is spending time in prayer, spending time reading his word, sharing, the, sharing him with other people. You know, out of every day, almost two and a half hours. Do we spend at least two and a half hours with God? Some do, some don't. You know, if you have TV, probably not because you're spending four or five hours a day with your TV <laughs> rather than with God. But you know, how important is God to us? What example are we? And he says, those that are trying to take you away by their covetousness, he says, whose judgment now is is a long time lingering not. He says, they're going to judge. And he says, it's not going to be a long time away. And their damnation slumbers not. Their judgment. Their judgment. Those who are trying to take people away from, from God. The false teachers. And this is my statement all the time. Sin has consequences. Now it may seem like we're getting away with stuff for a long time even. You know, I'm going a long time and not being punished. And God says, no, you may think that you're not. You may think you're getting away, but just the emptiness of it all is a punishment. You know, we look at them from the outside and go, God, how come they're not being judged? And God, and God will say, well, you don't know what it's like when they lay down in bed and it's quiet. And they realize what they're doing is, is not leading them where they're going. And this is the testimony I hear so often, you know, when I listen to testimonies. I was in bed and all of a sudden the, these words came back to me. The words of the Bible haunted me. The words that this Christian said haunted me. I had no peace. A lot of people who are living in, away from God also can't sleep at night. They are so broken up and so convicted of their sin that every time they sleep, or try to sleep, or get to a quiet place in their life, God intrudes. We've, probably, we've all probably been there at some point in our own life, where we know we're guilty, we know we're not following God, and God keeps intruding every time we sit still for any length of time, and quietness happens, which is one of the reasons that these people that are running from God stay busy a lot. They stay drugged up. They stay, they stay as drunk as they can and, and still be able to function because they don't want the quiet time where God intrudes in their life. And God still intrudes in their life. 
over and over again. Peter now starts talking about the history of God bringing judgment upon, upon the evildoers. Verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into change of, chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. We don't know when this particular event happened. There are many who believe that Satan fell after the creation and that the angels were created during the creation. I don't believe that. I believe that they were in existence before the creation of our universe. Neither here nor there. It doesn't matter. Some, at some point in our history or before our history, the angels sinned. And God did not spare them. They, they came into judgment. And he's making his point. The angels. People think angels, you know, wow, angels, got, they, can get what, they can do whatever they want. I know we used to have some, lots of shows on TV all about angels. We may still do. I don't know. I watched a couple of them. I hated watching shows where angels make mistakes and do things wrong and do things that are not God's way. And then they're talking about them being good. No, that is not true. Now, it's one of my problems with all these different angel shows, uh, you know, is that they would not only not know God's plan, and I have no problem with that, but they would do things that were immoral and against God's laws and be shown as good angels of God. That bothered, bothered me. So I would usually did not watch the angel shows because I watched enough of them to get tired of the bad picture of angels. But God did not spare the angels. Okay, most people think of angels. Okay, God, angels, what wonderful things. Again, my, my normal statement whenever we talk about angels is our end is not to become angels. When we die, die we do not become angels. Matter of fact, we are told that we as followers of God will rule over the angels in heaven. Now, they're stronger and more powerful than we are right now. They are our tutors. They are our uh, observers. But when we get to heaven and we get our glorified bodies, we will be above them. We will be rulers of them. You know, so never get this idea that, you know, because I hear it all the time, a lot of Christians, well, I just can't wait. You know, my grandma's an angel in heaven looking over me. No, your grandma, if she's in heaven, is not looking over you. She's at the throne of God, worshiping God. If she was not know God, then she's in a place you don't want her to be. And you don't want to ever try to go there. So we look at this where... He says that he spared not the angels. A third of the angels were cast out of heaven because they followed Lucifer. And his revenge against God is to try to take as many human beings into hell and away from God. Again, we've talked about that. Not that he can start a kingdom in hell. He is not the king of hell. He is not the ruler of hell. He is a prisoner of hell. Why does he want so many people to go with him? Because it hurts God. Man is God's special creation made after his image. And the more people he can take away from God, the more he hurts God. He's not looking for uh, misery loves company. He's not looking for anything other than I want to hurt God. Which is what motivates him to keep fighting so hard, even though he knows he's going to lose. He just wants to make as much impact as he can to hurt God. In verse 5, he said, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The, the noatic deluge, the noatic flood, covering the earth to a, 
to the highest marks being covered by 15 cubits of water, which is approximately 45 feet of water over the highest peaks. It's a lot of water. Now, how high those highest peaks were, we don't know. I think they were a lot less than they are today than, 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 uh, than, than now, but the entire earth covered. The eighth, the eighth generation from Adam, yes, the eight, eight generations from Adam and Noah and his family, the only survivors. Now, I, we don't know how many people were alive during, during that first 1,500 years. These people lived to be 1,000 years old. And I did some calculations I, on some really small numbers, they, you know, figuring they only gave birth for about 100 years and, you know, and had five or 10 years between them. I still came up with like uh, two and a half million people on the earth at the time of the flood. When I ch changed those numbers to be more realistic, like having a five or 600 year reproductive span and having kids every, every two or three years, we put close to a trillion people on this planet. Okay, how many people were alive before the flood? A lot, <laughs> okay, a lot more than we normally think about. They had 1,500 years to have the planet filled with people living a long time. There were a lot of people on this earth. And what was God's testimony? They were all doing what was right in their own eyes, ignoring God, walking into sin willfully, saying, well, I know, you know, I know that there's supposed to be a God out there, you know. Grandpa, Grandpa Adam just died about 300 years ago, and he used to talk about creation all the time, but he was just delusional at 900 years old. We, we didn't believe him. You know, he was just delusional. He was losing his marbles. You know, we, we don't believe that there was a God. We, you know, we are all that, all that exists. Sound a little familiar to what goes on today? Ah, these Christians, that Bible is just a book of myths. These Christians are believing, believing nonsense. Yeah, it's nothing to it. You know, yeah, they, look, they, call, they call our lifestyle sin. You know, we don't have a problem with it. We think it's okay. Well, God's got a judgment coming, and it's going to come sooner than they expect. We are getting close to everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And just as he did with Noah and rescued Noah and his family, he will rescue Christians and then bring judgment upon this world. But yeah, it's about, it's 15, it's less than 1,600 years and just over 1,500 years from creation to the flood. And only these eight people survive. And it said he was a preacher of the good, uh, righteousness and good. And even the, then, we know that Noah wasn't the perfect man either. Because what's the first thing he do, does when he gets off the uh, ark is he creates this vineyard and, and creates wine and gets drunk. And then we find out his kids really aren't good, at least one of them. You know, uh, Ham is not a good guy at all. You know, he's, he sees his father naked and you know, makes fun of him and possibly does more than that. We don't know fully what why, but he ends up having his son cursed. And his son was worse than he was. So we see God spared, but it was his grace and his mercy that spared Noah. And if that's not enough, he goes, okay, now we turn to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God turned them into ashes to condemn them with an overthrow, making an example unto those that should live God ungodly. He's saying, okay, you, we're, we're working our way up. The angels got punished. 
the world got punished. And then God said, okay, rather than the world, let's just punish Sodom and Gomorrah, that entire valley, where he rained fire and brimstone upon them and destroyed an entire valley for their sin. How bad were they? Bad enough to get totally destroyed. And I, sometimes I wonder how bad that was. We get an example of when the angels come in and Lot brings them into his house because they were going to sleep on the streets and go, oh, no, you can't sleep on the streets. You know, you sleep on the streets and you are going to be attacked and raped. Come into my house and I'll protect you. And that wasn't enough. They were trying to tear down the doors to Lot's house until they were blinded and the, and the angels took them out. How close are we to this event? If you listen to the right sources, we have stories of this kind of stuff happening. Doors being pounded down, churches being attacked and broken into because they dare to take a stance against homosexuality. Physical attacks against people because they will say that homosexuality is a sin. We're not too far from judgment. Now, when I read these things, I think, wow, God, how much longer? Because I look and go, we, we see evidence of these things happening. God, how, how much longer? Jesus said, I'm returning soon. 2,000 years ago, it's soon by God's standards, not soon by our standards, but it's soon. The one thing we do know, we're closer today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, we'll be closer tomorrow than we are today. But you know, I look at the world around me and go, okay, God, if we're not there, how bad is it going to get? I look around and say how bad we are and going, wow, God, how patient you are. If this is not bad enough, you know, how bad is bad? Because I look around our world and go, wow, this is amazing that you're not judging us. And the grace of God abounds to not bring judgment on us yet. And I look at these and I'm going, all right, God, don't understand. Verse 7 continues this, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the world. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelled among them, in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, I don't know, because there's nothing in the scripture that tells us that Lot was bothered by all of this. All right? Uh, now, he did protect them. He, you know, the, the only thing we did see is he saw the angels, not knowing they were angels, and said, no, no, gentlemen, you can't, you can't sleep in the streets. So we do know he's got righteousness. He didn't pass it on to his kids very well. He was willing to give his daughters up for an exchange, which doesn't make much. But by the same token, we do know that mentality was different there. You know, unfortunately, even in that day and age, women weren't considered very valuable. But I still can't th imagine, you know, being willing to let my daughters be abused, my daughter or daughters being abused to protect somebody. That's just, and that's not the only place where that's mentioned. It's also mentioned in Judges where that happens. And in that case, they actually take the women and abuse them and kill one of them. So here we see the scriptures telling us that Lot was a righteous man. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Lot was a righteous man and was vexed by what he saw. So there was some teaching somewhere that it's understood that Lot was a righteous man living in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of hard to picture. But we do know that happens. People can be live righteous even in the midst of sin. They stand out like a sore thumb and and uh, make life difficult. But it says he was vexed. And vexed with their filthy conversations of the wicked. And one of the things that really get me in this day and age is 
how much filthy, wicked speech is going on. And some of it's just plain dirty. What is going on in our world where people cannot speak with any kind of professionalism, any kind of cleanness, any kind of edification? But by the same token, I am offended. I'm not going to go after them because I'm, I'm not going to try to change their lives. You know, and, you know, God puts me one-on-one with them in the right conversation, maybe, but not, I'm not their pastor. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not their keeper, so I can't control the way they speak. All I can do is be an example of how to speak and how to live. I listened to a youth pastor one time say that it's really sad that we have lost every adjective in the, langu- in the English language except one. And that, one. and that one is used for every single adjective that you want to use. And, you know, we look at this and say, God, when are you going to move? Judgment will have to come very soon if this world does not repent. If we do not see a grand revival in this world, judgment must fall because we are getting close to noadic times where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. Times like Sodom and Gomorrah being judged for their sexual immorality and their, and their depravity overall. Not just, not just sodomy was the big problem there. They committed every sin, every imaginable sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were doing what was right in their own eyes, which included all the sexual sins. You know, and it says, verse 9, The Lord knew how knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment. That is our good news. God knows how to protect us. And when this judgment falls, he will take the righteous and protect us. This is one of the reasons that we know when the great tribulation comes, we will be gone. Because the tribulation is not for his children. This tribulation period is for the ungodly. And this is where Peter is taking up. God delivered uh, Noah. He delivered Lot. You know, when the time comes, he will deliver his church. We will be taken out and the world will face a judgment that they have not conceived of in the past. We're going to stop at verse 9. Yeah, it's that time already. Past that time, actually. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us to live a godly life. Help us to be examples of shining light to those around us that are living in darkness. Help us to witness to those people. And Lord, give us comfort that you will deliver us out of the temptations and trials that you have brought that are coming our way and that you will keep and protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.